Morning. Can you hear me? I'm Keith, and I am an alcoholic. I love this uh, word right here. I think it's probably the first thing I saw when I started reading the big book. Uh, and, and it was really simple for me. It was on page 12. It says it was only a matter of being willing to believe in a power greater than myself. And this is the important part to me. Nothing more was required of me to make my beginning. That was the best I could do when I got here. That was absolutely the best I could do. I grew up on a farm uh, with five brothers, uh, and I, I was the third, and I was considered the black sheep of the family. Uh, I had wonderful parents, and I didn't know that uh, until about two years before my dad died. You know, I was the type of person who was always looking for the bad, never looking for the good. And I couldn't see how hard my folks worked and the sacrifices that they made so that we could have underwear under the Christmas tree or we could have a shirt under the Christmas tree. The simple things in life. I was never looking for the simple things. You know, I was always looking for that one big thing, that one big thing, and I didn't know what it was. All my life I spent looking for something I didn't know what it was. On October of 1965, I got a letter from Richard M. Nixon. He said he wanted me in, in the Army of the United States of America. And uh, December 5th was my reporting date, and I went, and uh, I, I remember my attitude when I left. You know, it wasn't real great. I was going someplace I didn't want to go. And I remember on uh, December 15th, they came and they told us we was allowed to go home for Christmas that year. And I went home, and it was the same thing when I got home. My attitude really sucked. You know, I wasn't grateful for anything. All my life, I could not be grateful for the little things. And it just it just was tearing me up inside. I went to basic training, got through basic training, got through AIT, and then they sent me to Vietnam. And I remember when I came home from Vietnam, I came home with the attitude, you took two years of my life away from me, and you owe it back to me. And I set out to try and get it. And, and I learned when I was in the Army what alcohol could do for me. I remember my first drink. I was 12 years old. It was one sip of beer, and I remember how foul it tasted, and I swore I would never put that stuff in my mouth again. But when I got into the Army, there it was, right there in front of me. And the next time I took that drink, it did something for me. It put something inside of me that I had never had in my whole life. It had a calming effect. That, that one drink, that's all it took. And it was an instant love affair from there on. I remember when we was over there, uh, 
all the officers were throwing a big party for themselves to celebrate something. I have absolutely no idea what it was. But they invited me and a couple other guys to be bartenders. I had absolutely no idea what the hell to do as a bartender, and they just said, all you have to do is pour the drinks. I could do that. Then when the party was over, they told us we could take whatever booze was left. So we poured all the wine, all the whiskey, all the bourbon, and all the vodka into two bottles. We just mixed it all up. And we took it and we drank it. Man, that was good stuff. And boy, about three hours later, it wasn't good stuff. It was just some nasty rot gut. But I, I was able to get through that. And then the disease of alcoholism, it, it took effect to me, I believe. It told me that I could do it again. And the results would be different. And I drank that way for a lot of years. Drinking, getting sick, swearing I'd never do it again. Drink, get sick, I'm never going to do this again. And I had to come to the program of Alcoholics Anonymous to find out why I kept doing this. And it tells me on page 24. And I'd, I'd like to read that. Because I think it's so very important. Especially to someone who really doesn't understand, like I didn't when I got here. And it says, at a certain point in the drinking of every alcoholic, he passes into a state where the most powerful desire to stop drinking is of absolutely no avail. This tragic situation has already arrived in practically every case long before it is suspected. The fact is that most alcoholics, for reasons yet obscure, have lost the power of choice in drink. Our so-called willpower becomes practically non-existent. We are unable at certain times to bring into our consciousness with sufficient force the memory of the suffering and humiliation of even a week or a month ago. We are without defense against the first drink. That happened to me. That happened to me after I took that first drink. I had no defense against it. When I got home from Vietnam, I met a woman and she's the first woman who was willing to have anything to do with me. And we got married. And the first year was really a rocky and stormy affair. And then she got pregnant and we had a son. And I did some changing almost instantly. I didn't drink for the next three years. Because this, this young man who God put into my life was everything to me. From the time he was able to walk, he and I were inseparable. If I wasn't at work, we were spending time together. And then a daughter came along. And when she was started getting able to walk, the same thing happened. We spent a lot of time together, the three of us. There was a little place over by Aurelia where I lived at the time that had one of those great big county sand piles. And there was a couple little ponds there. And we'd go out there and we'd either fish or we'd climb up on that big sand pile. And the kids just loved it. And we spent a lot of time out there. And then one night, when the kids were, I think, four and six years old, uh, I was in the living room. My wife was in the kitchen. And she came walking out of the kitchen just as I was walking it in, into the kitchen. And she looked right at me and said, I hate you for stealing the love of my kids away from me.
And that's when I left the marriage, both mentally and emotionally. And that's when I started to drink again. And I remember a lot of times when I would be out drinking, uh, I would find myself all alone. Most of my drinking was the alone type of drinking. I got to where I hated me from what I was letting myself become. I didn't know that I had no choice over this matter. Several years after, I won't say several years, but it was after my father-in-law got into Alcoholics Anonymous. And he was very, very strong in it in the area where we where we were living. And I remember the, all the things they used to do because we almost had to make an appointment with them just to have time to spend with them because they were doing something in Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, some of that fun stuff that I didn't, I didn't think could exist. But I remember one night calling him up at 2.30 in the morning and saying, come and get your effing daughter because I can't stand to live with her anymore. And he came up and he got her. And he didn't say a word. He just took her home. A few days later, I was down to his place. And I was talking to him about what's wrong with me. And he, he just mentioned, do you think it could have something to do with your drinking? And I just said, I don't know. And he said, there is a program called Alcoholics Anonymous. And we have a book. It's called The Big Book. And this is our, our text and this is our guide. And he went and he got his big book. And he handed it to me. He said, if you would read this, you might find that you are in there. So I took the book, opened it up, I thumbed through it. There weren't any pictures in it, so I closed the book. I handed it back to him, and I said, I don't believe I would read this. And he said, that's okay. Someday you will. I wish today that I had half the faith that he had. You know, he knew someday I would be here. That's the only time, the only time, he ever talked to me about my drinking. And today I found out the reason why. And it's because of a speaker I heard one time talking. And he, he was talking about his kids being alcoholic, other kids being alcoholic. And he said the reason he could not help his own kids is because expectations will get in the way. I truly believe that today. Had my father-in-law got in there, he would have wanted me to do this deal faster than I could do it. And it's the same way with me today. You know, when I sponsor somebody else, I try to keep expectations out of it. Because this deal happened real slow for me. Real slow for me. I'd like to back up again. Uh, tell you a little bit about what it was like for my kids. Talk a little bit about them. One time when we were, my wife and I was having one of them little spats that, uh, you know, I just had to win. And I couldn't win. And, and, and this was after the alcohol had really taken effect. I told her I was going to go kill myself. 
So I went down to our basement, loaded a 12-gauge shotgun, and pulled the trigger. And after about 45 minutes, nobody bothered to come down and check on me. Man, I was pissed. And then I made a near-fatal mistake. I went upstairs. And this is very vivid in my mind, just like it had just happened. My wife was sitting on the couch. My daughter was sitting over here. My oldest son was sitting over here in the recliner. And I made the mistake of looking into their eyes. And the first thing I saw in their eyes was relief. You know, that relief of we don't have to go down and clean his brains off the wall. And then I looked and I saw the anger. You know, the hate. What's that crazy son of a bitch going to do next? And then I saw the fear. And that's the one that just about tore me up. How much I was scaring them. And I couldn't handle it. I went out the front door and I was drinking. And that's the way that my kids had to live. When my oldest son was 15 years old, he started climbing out the upstairs window. And he'd be gone for two or three days. Sometimes he'd be gone for a month because he couldn't stand to live in the alcoholic hell. And my youngest daughter, one time, you know, I wanted to have a conversation with her. And she didn't want anything to do with me. And she would go up and she would lock herself in her room. And one time I wanted to know what the hell was going on. So I went up there and I knocked on her door and she wouldn't, she wouldn't open it. So I kicked it in. And I went in and I started screaming and yelling at her. And I wanted to know. And she wouldn't tell me. And I started beating on her. And I couldn't stop. And finally when I stopped, I saw myself. And I hated it. I hated what I saw. And I was out the door again. And I was drinking again. Because I knew that the alcohol would kill. You know, it would kill everything that was going on inside of me. It would stop the hurt. It would stop the pain. But I was never able to see what I was doing to someone else. I just could not see that. In 1990... I went to a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I'm so grateful that my father-in-law instilled in me that it was there. Or not 1990, 1980. I went to three or four meetings. And something happened, you know. I walked away from there. And I was okay. I didn't need it anymore. I had quit drinking. And it lasted for about six months. And I was drinking again. And for the next 10 years, that's when my drinking went down, down, down. I lost the business, lost the family, lost the respect of pretty much everyone. Finally, this was, uh, I remember this night, it was September of 1990. I was coming off a big bender. I don't know how long it had been. Probably a year, maybe a little more than that, where I was drunk every day. And I remember there were some days when I'd pass out twice in one day. 
and it's about 2.30 in the morning. I came home and I went right down to our basement. And right in front of our washer and dryer, I just fell down on all fours and I said, God, I can't do this anymore. I just can't do this anymore. And a calm came inside of me. It's the greatest feeling I've ever experienced in my life. I didn't know where it came from. And at that point, I didn't care. But I was able to get up. And when I got up, I went to the phone book. And I started looking. I went to the yellow pages. And in there, there was a treatment facility in Cherokee that was listed in that phone book. At 2.30 in the morning, I was dialing that number. And all I got was a recording. But I remember what the recording said. It said something to the effect, if you are desperate, at least that's what I heard. Call this number in Sioux City. I had to dial that number in Cherokee three more times just to get those ten numbers written down so I could call that number in Sioux City. When I called that number in Sioux City, a live voice answered. And I just started to talk. I didn't have to say very much. And the person on the other end interrupted me. And she talked for a little while. And then I heard her say, you don't have to drink anymore if you don't want to drink anymore. And then she talked for a little while longer. And I don't remember what she said. But then I heard the next thing she said. That you don't have to hurt anymore if you don't want to hurt anymore. And then she talked a while longer. And she told me where she was at. She was at a treatment facility in Sioux City, Iowa. Said, we, we have a treatment program. It's an outpatient treatment program. We can get you in in two weeks. And I said, I won't be here in two weeks. And she started talking again. And she said, just a minute. Let me go check. And she went. I don't know how long she was gone. It seemed like an eternity. I know it wasn't more than a minute or so. And she came back. And she said, we can get you in Monday night if you would like to come. This was on a Thursday night. And I said, I'll be there. The next night, Friday night, Saturday night, and Sunday night, I was drunk, drunk, drunk. I went to their treatment facility on Monday night with the worst hangover. I mean, I was really feeling lousy. And they took me in. And this is something I, I, I don't remember. It was at the end of the treatment program that I realized I had done this. I had signed a whole bunch of papers agreeing to pay for this and all that sort of stuff. And I did. I paid for it. But I didn't remember that until they discharged me. Uh, as I said yesterday, I drank all the way through this treatment program. And I got out on a Thursday night. Friday night, I was drunk again. And the next year was absolutely the worst year of my life. Absolutely and totally the worst year of my life. Because I was drinking, going to AA meetings, trying not to drink. And every time I quit drinking, I wound up getting drunk. Every time I quit drinking, I wound up getting drunk. And that's very key to me. That's very important to me. For me to remember that. If I try to quit drinking, I will get drunk. Finally, 
I don't know. It was it was sometime as near as my sponsor and I can figure out. It was sometime in August of 1991 because I had been using him this whole year. And I called him up one night and he just said, why don't you come down? And I went down to his place. And I'd been going down there a lot. And every time I'd go down there, there was a little ritual we had to go through. You know, he would invite me in. Then he would go sit in his recliner. His wife would be sitting in the easy chair. And his two girls would be laying on the floor. And they'd be watching television. And then they did the unspeakable. They started talking to each other. I couldn't relate to that. They started being a family. I couldn't relate to that. They started showing me. And that first time I went down there, I remember this so distinctively. I don't think I was there over 15 minutes. And I got up to leave. And they both walked me to the door. And when I was ready to walk out the door, his wife put her arms around me and said, please come back. You know, that's the first time in a long time anybody had asked me to come back anywhere. So the next year, I was I was calling and going down, calling and going down. And then a lot of the times I'd go down there at supper time. And every time they'd ask me if 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 I wanted to eat. And I would say, no, no, I'm not hungry. My pride would not allow me to say yes. You know, I'm sure they could hear my stomach growling. But my pride would not allow me to say I'm hungry. Uh, and then this night finally happened when I called him up. And he said, why don't you come down? We went in. We did the quick ritual. It didn't last as long this time. Then he went and he grabbed a flashlight in his big book. And he said, we're going to go out in the front yard. And in his front yard, he had this big, beautiful shade tree and a picnic table sitting under it. And he said, what we're going to do is we're going to start talking about the steps. And he did that. He started talking about step one. I don't know how long he talked about it. I, re- I really don't remember. And I remember the one thing he said that was so important to me that I was able to grab a hold of. He started talking about we admitted we were powerless over alcohol. I didn't have a problem with that. Our lives had become unmanageable. I had a problem with that. Because I hadn't lost anything yet. The losing come later. And he said that's not important to, re- to have be unmanageable. Let's get this thing where it can work from you. Talking to me from where I was at with no sobriety instead of from where he was at with 11 years of sobriety. And he told me early in his sobriety, he was at a meeting where the person who read How It Works misread that first step. And they read it our lives have become unbearable. Man, that's exactly where I was. And I was able to grab that word unbearable, and I was ready to go to the next step. And he started talking about that. And the we, the came, the to believe, then he hit that word that we all have a problem with. Restore. Restore us to sanity. I didn't feel like I was crazy yet. I just could not grab a hold of that. And then he said, all that means, all that means is restore us to a right way of living. I could grab a hold of that because I had not been living the way I wanted to be living. 
I was absolutely, totally miserable and hateful with myself on the inside. And I was ready to do anything to get rid of that feeling. And then he went on to the third step. And he started talking about that. And there, there was that God thing. And I just couldn't handle that. He said, that's not important right now. He said, that's not important right now. And he was absolutely right. It wasn't. But he said, what is important is there's a third step prayer in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And what we're going to do is we're going to hold hands and we're going to read that prayer out loud together. I said, okay. He grabbed a hold of my hand and he started reading. And I heard myself reading out loud, fumbling through the words. And I remember thinking to myself, what a bunch of bullshit. And we got halfway through that prayer and that thought was still there, what a bunch of bullshit. But when we got to the end of that third step prayer, it happened again. That calm came on the inside of me. It's a, it's a feeling I can't explain, but it's absolutely wonderful. And I knew that I didn't have to drink again if I didn't want to drink again. Went on, I had a four-step written down. I guess I'd like to share a little bit about that before, before I go on, because it's very important how I wrote out my four-step. You know, I did all this while, while I was still drinking. But I was desperate. Man, I was desperate. I was willing to do anything I had to do not to drink except do what I had to do. <laughs> over by Aurelia, there's a, a little lake over there they call Larson's Lake. And I used to go out there with a fishing pole a lot and, and drink. I used the fishing pole as an excuse to go out and drink. But there was this ugly old willow tree. It was one of them that grew up like this and then out over the lake. And I stood under that lake while I was drinking and I could find some peace. I don't know why or how, but I could find some peace. So one day in desperation, I took a paper and pencil out with me. And I started writing my four-step. And I struggled with that. And my sponsor helped me there again. As I told him, man, in treatment, they told me I got to find all this good stuff and put it down on paper and all this good stuff about me. And hell, there ain't no good stuff about me. And he said, well, if you'll get your big book out and you read what it says in the fourth step, it doesn't say anything about good stuff. It just says an inventory of your life. You know, and he said, there's some good stuff there. Because you get to write down all the resentments about other people. How much you hate other people. I thought, wow, I can do this. This is something I was good at. Then he also said, there's them three columns. But he said, after you see those three columns, you keep on reading. He said, there's a fourth column. And he said, that fourth column is you. That's where you will find you. That's where I needed to start with me. And I was able to put that stuff down on paper. The hardest part 
for me of the fourth step was the beginning and not understanding. And that's where my sponsor came in. I didn't understand the first step, second step, third step, fourth step. He helped. And I was able to do it. I went on and I did a fifth step that night. And I, I, I remember this. It wasn't a very good one, but it was the best I could do at the time. And the first thing out of my mouth was what I was going to take to my grave. It was something no one was going to know about me. And for some reason, that was the first thing that came out of my mouth. And I remember when I left, it was about midnight. It was that feeling. Feeling that I knew I didn't have to drink again if I didn't want to drink again. I was driving truck at this time and I would stop at a, it was down in Denison, Iowa, to fuel up all the time. And uh, I would always walk by the beer case when I was drinking. And I would always open the door when I was drinking. And I would always pull some beer out of that cooler when I was drinking because I needed it just to get back to where I would pick up my load. But after I had done these first five steps, I could walk by that beer cooler and not open the door. I wanted to. See, God has not removed the I wanted to from me. He has removed the obsession to drink alcohol. He's removed the obsession. Today, there's still times I think about drinking. And that's okay, because I need to remember where I came from. That's something I must not forget. My home group is the TGIF group in Cherokee. It's a beginner's meeting, and I love that meeting. I just love that meeting. We invite the people in the treatment center down. They come down every Friday night, and that's something that I need. I need to hear where, where I came from. They can share that with me. They help me remember. When I first started going to meetings, this is something that's very important also. There was a lot of smoking meetings around at that time. And my sponsor would, he would drag me here and there every once in a while, you know. And after this one particular meeting, I had probably been sober about three, four months. And he said, why don't you go empty your ashtray? So I did. I went and emptied one ashtray. Man, I was feeling good about myself. I had done something he asked me to do. And I went back over and I made the mistake of standing by him. He said, you think you're too effing good to empty the rest of the ashtrays? I started emptying ashtrays. And I did that for a long time. And then I started making coffee. That's something I really needed to do. I would go an hour early. I would put on the coffee. It gave me a little feeling of self-worth. Something that I didn't have. 
something as simple as making a pot of coffee gave me self-worth. And I did that for over six years. And I remember when somebody came in and said they would like to start making coffee. Man, I didn't want to give that up because of what it was doing for me. But then I remembered what it had done for me. And I gave up the job of making coffee. And about a year later, this person was gone. And I started making coffee again. It's a wonderful feeling to make a pot of coffee. The sharing. Sharing with someone else. Because that's something I couldn't do when I got here. I couldn't share with anybody else. I was too self-centered. Way too self-centered. It was all about me. Not about you. Another story I like to tell a little bit about when I when I was first getting sober. There was this guy in a really he'd had a couple years of sobriety, and he hauled me to a lot of meetings. He hauled me to a lot of meetings, and this this happened in that year when I was still drinking. I remember coming back from that little lake where I where I'd been at. I pissed off my wife about something, and I went out there and started drinking. And I only took a six-pack with me, and I don't know why. But when I drank that, I came back to town, and I come to a stop sign. If I would turn right, I would go up to this guy's house. If I would keep going, I would go down to the Casey store where I could buy more beer. I don't know why this happened, but for some reason, I made the right-hand turn. And I went up, and I knocked on his door. And he come to the door, and all I said was, I've started again, and I can't stop. And he said, we have company, and I'm going to ask them to leave. And when they leave, you're going to come in. And he asked the company to leave, and when they left, he invited me in. And right in the middle of the living room, he stopped me, and he looked right at me. And he said, if you need to finish this thing, I'll go buy you a 12-pack. But if you do, you're going to drink it right here so you don't hurt yourself. And then he said, or... We can just talk. And I said, let's talk. And he started talking. And I heard them think, them words that I heard from that gal's treatment center again. He started talking for a while. And then I heard him say, you don't have to drink anymore if you don't want to drink anymore. And then he talked for a little while again. And he said, you don't have to hurt anymore if you don't want to hurt anymore. And then he kept on talking. And then he said, let's just watch TV for a little while. This was about 10 o'clock at night. And shortly after, I got up to leave. And he said, no, you're not going yet. You're not ready. It was about midnight when he finally looked at me and he said, I believe you're going to be okay now. And he let me go home. I remember my last drunk. I remember it very well. I couldn't accept that it was the first drink getting me drunk. I had bought some beer and I took it out to this little lake again. And I remember going out there the whole way. I was saying, God, please don't let me drink this. Please don't let me drink this. Please don't let me drink this. And I drank one can of beer. And for some reason it that was it. The next morning I woke up 
and I had absolutely the worst hangover I'd ever had in my life. I had the shakes, but that's when it happened. I finally accepted that if I take that first drink, it's going to happen again. It's going to happen again. In 1994, uh, I was going through a divorce and watching my dad die at the same time. Something wonderful happened then. And it happened in this room, really. I was trying to make amends to my dad, you know. And I was talking to him one time. And I was saying some things I needed to say. And then he started saying some things he needed to say. And he said something I didn't want to hear that I needed to hear. And he said, you know, son... Some people can make it through life without a crutch. Man, I wanted to tie into him and explain to him, but I didn't. I just listened. I just listened because I knew he was right. I carried a lot of guilt the way I treated my dad. I carried it for a long time. And after he died, the guilt, it just wouldn't go away. I did what you people told me. I went out to the cemetery and I talked to him, but the guilt wouldn't go away. In 1995, there was a gentleman speaker here from North Carolina who was talking about his brother who had only been sober for six months before he died. And this guy had been sober for 22 years. And he said, my brother's six months of sobriety was every bit as good as my two, 22 years of sobriety because he was sober all the time he had left. And I was able to take that and use that with my dad. For the last six months of my dad's life, I was there for him. He was there for me. And I was able to start letting go of some of that guilt. And it was very important. Very important. I made it, uh, amends to my dad clear, clear up to the time my mother died. Because one of the ways I could make amends to him was to spend more time with my mother. That worked for me. I've done a lot of crazy things in this program that I didn't think would work. And they wouldn't have worked if I wouldn't have tried them. Three weeks ago, I got a phone call from my oldest son. He's the one who used to go out the upstairs window. And he he loved to drink. He loved to drink. For ten years, I'd only seen him one time because he didn't want to have anything to do with me, and that was at his sister's wedding. But three weeks ago, he called me. He said, Dad, I know you're an AA. And he said, does AA really work? And I said, yes, it does. Then he started talking a little bit about He had done something that made him look at himself. And I had to be very careful how I talked to him because I wanted him to get it and I wanted him to get it right now and I wanted to make sure he got to a meeting. But I did not do that. 
I just let him talk. I just let him talk. And then he said some really, really important words. He said, Dad, I've already gone to the phone book, and I've already called AA. And they told me where there's a bunch of meetings. Last Tuesday night, we talked again, and he told me he had been to several meetings. And he said the first meeting he went to was a crowd of about 250 people. And he said at the end of the meeting, they had a drawing to give stuff away. But he also said at the beginning of the meeting, they asked, is there anybody here for the first time? And he said, I raised my hand. And when the meeting was over, there was he said there was an elderly lady who had won a big book. He said, after the meeting, she came up and she gave me that big book. He was impressed. Just like I was when I started. Somebody cared enough To let us know that there's a way out. That we don't have to hurt anymore if we don't want to hurt anymore. When my mother died last March 31st, she loved, she loved to make quilts. She just absolutely loved to make quilts. She made each one of us kids three quilts. So at the end of her obituary, we found this little little writing by, we don't know who because the author is unknown. And I, I would like to read that now. I don't know if it has anything to do with AA or not, and I really don't care. But I'm going to read it. It says, life is like a patchwork quilt, and each patch is a day. Some patches are rosy, happy, and bright, and some are dark and gray. But each little patch as it's fitted in are sewn to keep it together, makes a finished block in this life of ours filled with sunshine and rainy weather. So let me work on life's patchwork quilt through the rainy days and the sun, trusting that when I have finished my block, the master will say, well done. I believe that's what Alcoholics Anonymous is all about. It teaches me that there's going to be rainy days. It teaches me that not always going to be sunshine. And it teaches me how to handle it. It was the hardest thing for Alcoholics Anonymous to teach me how to handle the good stuff. I was okay with the crap. It was the good stuff. It was the good stuff that I couldn't handle. I was that way all my life. I couldn't handle the good stuff. I couldn't see the good stuff. I love to talk about the journey of finding the God of my understanding. When I first got here, you know, I, I had absolutely no intentions or want to believe or do anything with God. Until my sponsor helped me with this too. He told me that his first 
God was a tree. I was able to do that also. I was able to take that ugly old willow tree and use that for my God. So after all, when I wrote out my fourth step, I had a six-pack of beer sitting right beside me in case it didn't work. But the journey of finding the God of my understanding has progressed. When I was about two years sober, I knew I needed something other than this tree. I went to a meeting. It was our Friday night meeting. There was a gentleman there. He used to come quite often. He was an old timer. And I heard him say, if you don't have a God you can understand, please use mine. He's big enough for both of us. And I remember grabbing a hold of that. I can do that. I didn't know what it was. I didn't care. But I could see it in him. And that was good enough for me at the time. And I've now progressed. There was a time in my sobriety when I needed answers. Why is this? Why is this? Why is this? Until I finally found the God of my understanding that really works for me. And it's very simple. My God expects me to screw up so he'll have something to do so he won't get bored. Pretty simple. But as the years went by, I needed a little more than that. And today, I have a God that is so, so simple to understand. And I don't remember where I heard this. I heard somebody say one time, God either is or he isn't. Today, I choose to believe my God is. Thank you for listening.